So last week I preached a sermon about what makes a church dynamic. And uh, I didn't know at the time that, that you guys were going to have an opportunity just a few days later to show me what actually makes a church dynamic. And so uh, I just want to start by saying thank you to all of you. Over these last few days you have done incredible ministry and I am overwhelmed and so proud that I get to be a part of this congregation. I'm so grateful that I get to serve alongside all of you. So uh, I'm not going to ask you to give yourselves a round of applause. I just want you to know how grateful I am for all of you. So thank you. Uh, my name's Tony. If you guys don't know me, if this is your first time here, welcome. We are very glad that you are here today. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Tabor. Most of the year, you're going to hear me up here preaching. It's really the only thing they trust me with around here, so uh, that's, that's how that goes. I uh, also want to say thank you and hey to everybody who's watching on Facebook Live this morning. We're glad that you're with us. We know you'll probably watch several times before you'd ever consider being here in person. I want you to know we're okay with that. If you have any questions, questions about Tabor, uh, feel free to send us a message on Facebook. We'll work through that with you. Uh, but I want to start with this this morning. I saw an article on Facebook earlier this week, and, and many of you know this, but some of you may not, but um, Facebook is like this black hole, and it's like you get into it, and then you emerge days later, and you know, you're like, you're hungry, and you don't know what happened. And just So I try to stay off of Facebook for, that's a lie, I don't, but I, I, I needed to stay off of Facebook because I had a lot to get done, and I needed to send out a message to a group of volunteers, and Facebook was just going to be the most efficient way to do it, so I hopped onto Facebook, and I said, Tony, be an adult, be disciplined, just send your message, and then get back to work. You don't have time for this. Well, the first thing I saw was this article that caught my attention, and I just had to read it. I just had it. Here's, here's the title of the article. The top gifts to buy for people you don't really like but have to buy for anyway. And I thought, boy, I've got to read this. And so I opened it up. I want to share some of my favorites from it. The first one was this, a low-quality wireless mouse for your computer. And they said, because who doesn't want to add frustration to their day? And I thought, well, that's pretty good. A low-quality wireless mouse. I'll, I'll add that one. Uh, here's the next one. Uh, you know those, those bins of bargain books that they put by checkout counters? You know, it's like, was $29.95 reduced to $2.50? There's a reason that book is $2.50, okay? Uh, and, and so they said, pick out a book from the bargain bin, bonus points if you don't check to see what book it is. So that's a gift to buy for somebody you have to buy for but don't really like. Here's the next one, sidewalk chalk. This one requires a little bit of explanation because it'll spark joy and creativity in four months when you can actually use it because it's too cold right now. All right, here is the pied de resistance, the number one gift to buy for somebody that you don't really like but have to buy for anyway is a betta fish. Because who doesn't want to add the responsibility of taking care of a fragile creature around the holidays, Right? So there you go. If you have gifts to buy for somebody that you don't really like but have to buy for anyway, there are some suggestions. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have anybody that you're thinking about right now, just so you know. Um, so that was my list. And, and, and I, want you to, I want you to know something. Uh, you can't force a joy on people. You can't force joy on people. You could give them a really great, thoughtful gift like a betta fish. 
And that might not make them happy. You just can't force joy on people. And I know that some of you are joyful around the Christmas season. Right after Thanksgiving, some of you go full-on elf. Right? Some of you go full-on Will Ferrell and elf. Some of you start dreaming Bing Crosby songs. And you are just ready for Christmas. But that's not the case for everybody. For some people, Christmas is an incredibly difficult time of year. And I want to explain this to you. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to do it with a formula. Um, Christmas will multiply whatever emotions you're feeling. Christmas will multiply whatever emotions you're feeling. So let me give you an example. Christmas times joy equals more joy. Christmas times laughter equals more laughter. Christmas times love equals more love, and Christmas times food equals more waistline. Okay? So, so that's the positive side of that equation, but understand that the opposite is true as well. Christmas times hurt equals more hurt. Christmas times loneliness equals more loneliness, and Christmas times grief equals more grief. And I need you to be crystal clear about what I'm about to say. None of that is an expression of faith, and none of that is an expression of a lack of faith. If you are hurting or lonely or grieving at Christmas time, that is not an indication of a lack of faith. It's a reality of living in a fallen world. And for all of those emotions, good and bad, I want to speak biblical truth over them today. Hope rooted in Jesus is stronger than any emotion we experience. It's stronger than any emotion we experience. And for the rest of our time together, I want to I explain what I mean by that. Because right now, I get it. I get it. That just sounds like a really preacher thing to say, doesn't it? Like, that just sounds like a really preachery thing to say. But let me explain what I mean by that, and I hope that when you leave here today, you'll see what I see. So uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. Verse 28, while you're turning there, or I'll have it up on the screen for you, whatever you prefer. I'm going to give you a little context. Uh, once upon a time, there was a young girl who lived in a town called Galilee. Uh, her name was Mary. I say young girl. She's about 15 years old, and she is engaged to be married to a guy named Joseph. You hear this story before? And one day, uh, an angel comes to Mary, like happens to all of us, right? And uh, the angel says to her, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. And Mary responded, I love this, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left her. 
So this is a, a very short conversation, but in this brief interaction between her and the angel, Mary proves, Mary illustrates why she found favor with God. She hears this impossible sounding message. You're a virgin, you're going to have a baby, and your baby is going to be the Savior of the world. And Mary says, okay, I just, quick question. I'm hearing everything you're saying, angel, but quick question. Um, I'm a virgin. How is all of this going to happen? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will conceive this child. And after just that one little follow-up question, Mary says, hey, I'm the Lord's servant. Let's do this. And that's why she found favor with God. She has this angel appear to her. and She hears a life-altering message. She asks one question, and she's on board. And when I say life-altering, I, what I really mean is life-altering. This does not change Mary's day. This does not change Mary's week. This does not change Mary's year. This changes the course of Mary's life. It changes everything about her life. And, and let me explain why. Because when people find out that she's pregnant, let me tell you what their first thought will not be. Their first thought will not be, you know, I bet that child was conceived through the Holy Spirit and everything's fine. Their first thought's going to be, you think the baby's Joseph's? Whose kid is that? They're not even married yet. What a disgrace. That's the first thought that those people are going to have. Now, let, let's talk about Joseph. The first thought in people's mind isn't going to be, oh, how sweet. And, and, and Joseph... He happens to have firsthand knowledge that the baby isn't his. The text tells us that he plans to divorce her quietly because he didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to shame her. Have you ever thought about what it means to shame her? It's more than just like more than just the, the humiliation of going through divorce proceedings or something like that. Let me tell you what the text means when it says he didn't want to shame her. In the New Testament, John chapter 8, we hear this story of Jesus talking with the religious leaders, and they drag in this woman who had been caught in adultery. She's likely naked, and they, they throw her onto the floor in front of the religious leaders, and they prepare to stone her to death. That's the kind of shame that Joseph was trying to spare Mary from. He didn't want to shame her, so he decided to divorce her quietly. And so, all of these things, all of these things that, that we're talking about here, they, they lead me to a really simple point. And I, you may be picking up on this by now. You've, you've probably got your Christmas cards picked out by now, and some of you probably have a nice manger scene on the front of your Christmas cards, a nice star, beautiful clear night. It's really picturesque, it's like Norman Rockwell could have painted it. That's not what the first Christmas was like. The first Christmas was full of pain and heartache and sorrow and grief and worry. It was not clean. It was a messy thing all the way around. See, if Mary stays around in Galilee, she's going to be subject to ridicule, shame, grief, despair. And so a few days after she leaves town, she leaves to stay with her family in the hills. 
So here's the point I'm making in all this. Everything we said so far, here's what I want you to know. Mary is leaving Galilee with emotional baggage. She's lonely. She is lonely. She knows that when she goes home, it will be with either a baby belly or a baby. And she will be ostracized from her community, from her family, and from her fiancé. And not only is she lonely, she's scared because if Joseph changes his mind, he can rightly have her executed and nobody will bat an eye. Some of you here today feel like Mary. You're starting to battle the loneliness of Christmas. And some of you, you're not wondering if your kids are going to come home for Christmas. You're wondering if your kids are going to come home at all. And your marriage is in a hard season. So even though your spouse is in the house, you feel completely alone. We could do this for a hundred different emotions that you feel every day. And remember, Christmas magnifies all of those emotions. It makes them more profound. It makes them hurt more. It brings that pain right back to the surface. So what I want to show you is that our hope rooted in Jesus doesn't eliminate that pain, but it changes the way we understand that pain and deal with that pain and experience that pain. So Mary's scared. and She's lonely as she leaves and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Here's what Luke tells us of the arrival. She entered the house and she greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her and Mary was filled, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what He said. Now, this is what I really want us to focus on. This next part is Mary's response. She is so overwhelmed with emotion that she breaks out in song. But the surprising thing is, the emotion that she expresses, it isn't pain. It isn't sorrow. It isn't worry. It isn't fear. It is joy. Listen to what she says. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He took notice of His lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One is holy, and He has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear Him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped His servant Israel and remembered to be merciful for He made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary's facing an uncertain future. But what we see in her song is that she is certain of her God. Her hope in God is stronger than all of the emotion she's feeling. Let's take a closer look at some of the things that she says and, and see what they might mean for us today. First of all, Mary, Mary expresses what she feels in her heart. She expresses what she feels in her heart. She says, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Maybe, maybe today you feel like Mary and your soul is just 
rejoicing in God your Savior. But maybe today you feel like the Mary who was leaving Galilee. And you feel more fear and loneliness and uncertainty about the future. Maybe instead of saying, my soul praises the Lord, what you need to say is, my soul is grieving. My soul is lonely. Or like Jesus said in the garden, my soul is grieved to the point of death. See, the Bible is full of godly people who expressed what they actually felt to a God who cares about them. Maybe most notably is, is King David. He wrote many of the Psalms that we have, and they're, they're songs and poems. And, it, and if you ever read through the Psalms, you'll notice that one chapter, uh, David is saying things like, My soul praises the Lord, the God of my salvation, who reigns forever and sits on His throne. And then the next chapter sounds like this, Oh my God, why have You departed from me? How long will You withhold Your loving hand from me? And what's David doing? He's expressing what he feels. He is being honest. And I need you to understand that honesty is so important. Now that seems like a pretty obvious thing to say. Obviously, we want to be honest, tell the truth. We have to be honest with our emotions. We have to be honest with our emotions. And that's difficult for Christians because we fall into this trap a lot of times. We, we fall into this trap where we believe if I'm not happy, I'm not holy. We say, if I'm not happy, I'm not holy. You probably experienced some version of this today. You came in here and uh, somebody greeted you and handed you a bulletin. And they said, hey, how are you doing today? All of our greeters are extroverts. They're really good at that sort of thing. And, and so they said, how are you doing today? And you said, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? And for some of you, that was the truth. For some of you, you feel like Mary in the Magnificat, and you're going, my soul praises my God forever. And you were just excited to be here, and you were ready to sing praise and worship to God. And for, you know, for some of you, it wasn't a lie. But for some of you, you argued with your spouse the whole way to church, and as soon as the door closes in the parking lot, you're going to pick that argument back up. And you said, I'm doing pretty good today. How about you? And for some of you, you came here today, and in the car, your kids took their socks and shoes off, even though you specifically said, leave your socks and shoes on. And you said, I'm doing pretty good today. How about you? For some of us, we, we, we fall into this trap where we believe if I'm not happy, I'm not holy. But here's the truth. If I'm not honest, I'm not healthy. If I'm not honest, I'm not healthy. So take time to express what you actually feel to a God who actually cares. Now, I want to explain to you, we'll shift gears a little bit, I want to explain to you why in the midst of this soap opera life that Mary has going on right now, that why she was still able to express joy. Verse 48, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. Verse 48 is key. Uh, Mary says, he took notice of his lowly servant girl. A key aspect of true joy is not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Because here's what happens. Sometimes, sometimes we get to think, I'm pretty good. 
We start to think, I've got it all together. The only person I need to rely on is numero uno. I can take care of it if I rely on somebody else or something else. I will be disappointed. We think I've got it all together, that we can handle everything, and we think that we are unbreakable. But here's the problem. When everything rests on your shoulders, everything is your problem. When you're responsible for everything, every critique is a critique of you. You see, the more that we convince ourselves that we're unbreakable, the more fragile we get. get so focused on what we can accomplish and what we should do that we forget to allow room for God to work through us. When we boil it all down, listen, I don't, I don't care what you're called at your job, boss, CEO, I, I don't care what your job title is, pastor, I don't care what board you serve on, what volunteer roles you have. I don't, I don't care about any of that because when we boil it all down, there is no greater title than this. Servant of the Most High God. And that's it. So here's my challenge for all of us. Mary was okay with being called a lowly servant girl. Here's my challenge for us. Be okay with being a lowly servant. Just be okay with being a lowly servant because that's who God does his work through. We talked about King David earlier and how he was always honest with his emotions. You ever heard the story about how David became king? Saul was king in Israel and and it it came time to select a new king because of Saul's immorality. And, And so God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he tells Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and when you get there, I will show you who the new king is going to be. And so Samuel goes, he introduces himself to Jesse, but that was a pretty cool conversation for Jesse. And, and he says, so let me, let me see your sons, and I'll tell you who the new king's going to be. And so Jesse's excited, and he grabs his oldest son, Eliab, and, and he brings Eliab in before Samuel. And Samuel thinks to himself, boy, this guy is tall, smart, handsome, looks a lot like Tony, and, and this is obviously going to be the new king. And, and God says, that's not, that's not the scorecard that I use. You're looking at all of these external factors, but I judge what's inside, what people can't see. And so they bring in the next son, and, and, and Samuel says, so surely this is the king. And God says, no. And seven times they go through this process. Surely this is the king. And God says, no. And, and that's all of the sons that Samuel sees. And so he goes, Jesse, what, what's going on here? You got, you got any more kids? Because God said, no, it's not any of these guys. And Jesse says, well, I've got another son, my youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep. Jesse says, well, go get him and bring him in here. And when he sees him, God says, that's my king. The youngest son, the least respected job, completely overlooked by his father, and that's who God chooses to do his work. So be okay with being a lowly servant. Because it's only when we let go of all our self-importance that we can truly worship God. I heard 
someone say once, I don't remember who, I heard someone say that it's only possible to worship God when we realize we aren't Him. And I think that's what we're seeing in Mary here. Mary knew that God had taken His lowly servants and given her an incredible honor. Let's let God do the same in all of our lives. But you know, in the same way that, that Mary was aware of what God was going to do in her life, Mary was also aware of what God was going to do for all life through this baby. And I want you to listen to what she says. Verse 50, he shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So there's two different themes in this passage that are each repeated three times. I want you to hear what they are. Here's the first one. God helps the humble. He says that in three different ways in this passage. God helps the humble. Here's the other. God humbles the proud. God helps the humble. God humbles the proud. And let's talk about this first one because the Bible proves this idea over and over again. God helps the humble. We look at the, the Hebrew people. God rescues them from Egypt. And he feeds them in the wilderness. He leads them to a promised land, a new home flowing with milk and honey where they can prosper forever. God helps the humble, but then the nation of Israel begins to prosper and they begin to think that they're doing it all on their own and they begin to think that they don't need God. And so what does God do? He humbles them. And this is the course of the Bible. God helps the humble and humbles the proud. God helps the humble and humbles the proud. Several months ago, we talked about Saul of Tarsus. He's a proud man. What did God do? He humbled him. He humbled him. But I need you to understand this, and I think this is one of the most beautiful things about who God is. God doesn't humble people so that he can stand over them and brag like some playground bully. God humbles the proud so they might be in a position to be restored. So they might be in a position to be restored. Because here's the truth. God loves the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. And you have to be humble enough to believe that you need Jesus. One of my favorite hymns has this line. I think Mary, the lonely servant, would appreciate it. It goes like this. I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee. See, the times when life is good and full of laughter and joy and love and food on the table, I need Thee. And when life is full of pain and sorrow and grief, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee. The good ones and the bad ones. So bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. As we begin to close today, I want to read you a few words from Jesus. Here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And I don't know where you are today. 
Some of you here today know exactly what it means to be poor in spirit. And I want to encourage you to express your emotions to God. Maybe you've never prayed before. Let me tell you how I taught my son to do it. We start this way. Hi, God. Now, I don't know what you need to say after that, but I think you probably do. Maybe some of you are here today and in your heart you know that you're too proud. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to admit it to yourself and take that to God and ask for His forgiveness. Whatever camp you're in, whatever you feel today, I need you to know this, that a hope rooted in Jesus is stronger than any emotion you'll ever experience. You will disappoint you. People will disappoint you. Your emotions will disappoint you, but Jesus never will. Mary understood that. And that's why in the midst of all of the things she was going through, her soul was still able to praise God. And I want that hope. And I want that security for you as well. Let's pray. God, please help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest with You. When, you're, when You see that we're proud, please have mercy on us. And when You see that we're weak, please give us Your strength to do Your work. We praise You, Father, that You show mercy to those who fear You. We praise You that You sent Jesus to redeem us. And we praise You because You are holy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.